Welcome to this workshop. I'm Jan and a compulsive overeater and I, I, I'm not nervous. <laughs> I am your moderator for this session. Please join me in a moment of silence followed by the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. I will now read our anonymity statement and the sixth tradition. Anonymity, uh, to those of you who might be here representing the, pr the print or television media, please help us preserve this cherished tradition of anonymity by refraining from taking pictures in this or any other meeting room. We ask that in your reporting on OA that you use only first names or pseudonyms indicated as such of OA members and that you obscure the faces of those who identify themselves as OA members. The sixth tradition. An OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise. Least problems with money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. The format for this session is to have three speakers share for 20 minutes their experience, strength, and hope on the topic, followed by open pitches. This is a one and one-fourth hour meeting. Our topic is practicing the principles in all our affairs. And... Um, Practicing the principles of love. We learn to accept others as they are, not as we would have them to be. We're beginning to take this new attitude not just toward other OAs, but also toward those at home, school, work, and in all areas of our lives. Slowly but surely, we find that we are establishing the best possible relationship with each person we know from the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions of OA. Our first speaker is Anthony C. from San Francisco. Hi, everybody. My name is Anthony. I'm a Colesville reader. Hey. Can everybody hear me okay? Um, I thought I'd tell... Uh, my abbreviated story so you know why I'm in OA and then focus in on the topic of practicing, practicing these principles in all our affairs. Are you going to give me like a little five-minute warning or something? Oh, down there. Okay, sorry. Got it. Um, I've been in OA uh, about 12 and a half years. I've been abstinent in OA for about 12 and a half years. Uh, I was fortunate I came and got abstinent a week after I, I got here. My abstinence is three meals a day, nothing in between, no sugar, and I don't eat any snacks at all. There's a long list of other foods I don't eat and um, certain other ways that I won't eat and don't eat and places and things I won't eat and don't eat. Um, the biggest thing for me, you know, that's a really simple abstinence, and the person who taught me OA said keep it simple is, is like that slogan applies to the food plan uh, as well as many other things, but... The one thing that I really got from him that's really worked for me consistently on a daily basis, and to be honest with you, my, my food's not perfect, my, you know, um, my absence is not perfect, I'm not perfect, but to 
be really honest, you know, fortunately, by the grace of God, I've done that abstinence every single day perfectly for over 12 years in the sense that I don't eat between meals. I've just never done it once, not a thing. And whether I'm traveling across the country or another out of the country or whether I'm working all night long or whether I just had a fight with a girlfriend or whether I lost a job and got fired because I wasn't doing good enough and all these things have happened, you know, and um, I never had to I never had to vary from that food plan one day. Um, you know, a lot of people, some people, I, I say what my food plan is in a way, and some people come up and they're like, that's too easy, you know, that's too easy for me. It would never work for me, you know. <laughs> and then other people come up to me and say, like, I could never do that. I couldn't do that for, for two days, you know. So it's worked for me, you know, and it's worked for a lot of people I know, and I'm grateful for it. But the one thing I want to say about it that I think is the most critical aspect that I don't hear talked a lot about in a way around the food plan is is the concept of clarity. And my sponsor's thing was to me, and I've always, it's always worked for me, is, um, you know, he'd say, know what your last bite is before you take your first bite. When you take a bite of food, you're on your drug. You're an addict. And we, we always approach this, this disease as an addiction and a disease, and this program as recovery, spiritual recovery from an addiction. I came here to lose weight. I'm roughly 60 or 70 pounds lighter than I, than I was when I came here, and, and I, my weight's rolled around 10 pounds for the last 10 years, but... I haven't had to gain that weight back. I haven't had to weigh 300 pounds or 350 or 400 pounds like many of my siblings do now today. So I'm grateful for that. Um, but this concept of uh, knowing what my last bite is before I take my first bite and knowing that, that my absence is really clear, that I don't eat between meals and I don't eat sugar and I, I know what those products are, it's a really phenomenal experience because, especially in the beginning, but even sometimes these days, you know, like, I eat my food, and when I sit down on my meal and eat it, sometimes, like, you know, it's compulsive. But you know what? It's the meal I planned. And somebody in this program, when I was when I was new, when I was young, and they had, had like 10 years of abstinence, and they were really somebody I respected then and respect now, you know, he said to me, um, you know what? Normal people don't eat perfectly, so don't kid yourself and think you're going to. You never will, you know? Just have a clearly defined abstinence and follow it on a consistent basis and work the steps of this program, and you'll be all right. And that's all I've done, and, and that, that's had the biggest, single biggest impact on me in my life in a positive way of anything I've ever done in my life, bar anything. So I'd just like to talk a little bit clearly about the food and the abstinence and how that works for me. Um, when I put the food down, uh, I came to this program binging my brains out on a, on a daily basis. I, I was binging every night. I was binging until I was in physical pain and distress. I was binging until I thought my stomach was going to split open. My mouth bled. My teeth were loose. Food would regurgitate. I was in a lot of physical distress, emotional distress, racked with self-hatred, kind of whipping through all the highlights, you know, because, uh, you know, I want to focus on the subject. But I want you to know, like, you know, to me, this is a, this is addiction. You know, this is this is crack cocaine to me. Food is. If I take one bite of the wrong food, I may never, ever come back. I absolutely believe that. If I eat sugar today, I may never come back here. I may die of obesity. I may, I may kill myself. I mean, I was an unhappy, miserable person paying my rent on my credit cards, thousands of dollars in credit card debt with no relationships, no real connection or friendships to anyone, racked with fear, failing at jobs, had failed in school, had problems with other substances, um, was just utterly hopeless about, you know, my future and, and filled with self-hatred and self-resentment and all those things. So. I was an unhappy person who couldn't really look anyone in the eye, speak up, speak loudly. I was I would go to the grocery store. I was afraid to have an interaction with the cashier. I, you know, I thought I'll blow it. You know, um, you know, I was, you know, it talks. It says, you know, we have this disease of self-centeredness. 
being going and being afraid of the cashier is self-centeredness. You know, it was like I won't do this right. You know, it's that that fear-based self-centeredness. It's pretty incredible. So, um, so when I came in this room, somebody saw me and said he'd be my sponsor, and he gave me that abstinence, and he said we'll work on on the steps, and he said we'll work our our program out of the AA big book in the AA 12 and 12, and that um, you know I I started doing it right away, and I asked this guy. I was really happy he offered me my sponsor. He was extremely thin, great shape, you know, a couple years older than me. And, um, you know, I talked him about losing weight. Uh, how do I lose weight? What do I do? And he'd go, well, work step one. And I worked step one with him. And how do I lose weight? And he said, work step two, you know. I said, how do I lose weight? And he said, work step three. And I said, you know, I want to lose weight faster. And like a month or so into this thing, he said to me, you know what, man, I've never been a pound overweight in my life. So I have no idea how to lose weight. But I know if you, um, <laughs> you know, he was a he was a compulsive overeater who binged his brains out and found OA and stopped doing it and had a, his life turned around. But but he never had a weight problem. And uh, you know, he said, hey, you know, um, I don't know how to lose weight, but I know that if you change in the insides, your outsides will follow, and your weight is part of your outsides. And um, we did the first step together, and and he showed me how you know my outsides were my weight, my relationships. Um, my job, my career, my family relationships, money, and every other aspect of my life. Oh, no. You okay there? No problem. Um, we actually worked that out ahead of time. Um, so, so anyways... Um, Practicing these principles in all my affairs, you know, it's it's kind of a daunting topic because, um, you know, the, to, saying hey, I'm going to speak on this is kind of like suggesting I practice all of these principles perfectly all the time in all of my affairs, which I'm not even close to. But I do practice these principles in my affairs. And I thought I'd, by the way, run down. I know where it's part of the focus is on page 105 of the, of the OA book, but I thought I'd run down what the principles are of the steps: um, honesty, hope, faith. Courage, integrity, willingness, humility, self-discipline, love, perseverance, spiritual awareness, and service is the the principle of the twelfth step. And um, you know, the one that that you know I, I think is really important, and are all really important, but maybe the most important for me, and, and the one that I really was like seemed like was always on me in, in the beginning of my program was honesty. You know, and um, you know, it's all kinds of forms of honesty and forms of dishonesty and stuff. But um, being honest a day at a time, a person at a time, a moment at a time. And when I mean honesty, not just the checkbook honesty, which I'll talk about too, but also I was a, um, I was a hardcore people pleaser. You know, I would tell you what you, I thought you wanted to hear. I would do what I thought you wanted me to do. I would, you know, um, do all that stuff, resent you for it, hate you, hate myself, be miserable, be afraid, not understand why the world sucks so much, my life is so horrible, but I would, I, you were pleased, you know, I'd keep you pretty happy if I could, even though that usually would end badly anyways. So for me, honesty, a big, the principle of honesty and practicing on my affairs began with, like, not people-pleasing people, you know, and um, I remember when I first started doing that, it was like pulling teeth, you know, not to... Not to do what I, you know, I thought people wanted me to do or whatever. And, um, you know, it's funny because uh, once I really worked through that defect of people-pleasing and practiced honesty with people, um, it took a, a period of time. I don't know, maybe six months or 12 months, I don't recall exactly, 
And in all that time, it was like I was had a challenge constantly. It was always a challenge. And today, then, but I, 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 I practice honesty and not people pleasing each time in those challenges. And um, now it never happens. Like almost never in my life does anyone in any place, relationship, or work anywhere ask me to people please them, you know? Like somehow people who are looking to use people, it's like an unconscious radar for people like I used to be. And they just, they come, they hone in, and they just go boom. And um, once I changed and had that like spiritual shift on the inside, and, you know, I was taught that a spiritual shift on the inside comes from changing your behavior on the outside. You know, like, I'm not going to think my way into not being a people pleaser. I'm going to have to say no to people um, when it's appropriate. And I'm going to have to do all this stuff. And I'm going to have to be honest with people when it's appropriate and tell them the truth and stuff. And then I had this shift. And then, you know, I, at the end, when I was still, like, people were showing up in my life and, like, and I was, I had gotten really good at it, I looked forward to it, you know. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I remember saying no to people, and they're like, no, really, seriously. And I'm like, no, seriously, no, you know. <laughs> I'm not giving you a ride, you know. Yeah, that's my car right there, and i got nothing to do, but you're not getting a ride, you know. Um, you know, so I kind of miss it now, you know. I wish people – because it was, like, it was really empowering, you know. It felt really good. Um, and it changed the way I felt, you know. It made me feel more present in the world, made me feel part of the world and all that stuff. Um, I remember when I was um, about a year aspirant. You know, and this is a thing I've said before in way, but I went to I went to lunch with two friends from a place I was working at, and, uh, you know, the bill came, and it was this one person's birthday. So I was going to pay my lunch and part of hers, and uh, the other guy goes, well, i got a company credit card. I'm just, we're just going to, well, put it on the company credit card, and, and you just tell everybody we had, we had a business lunch, you know? And the first thought that went through my mind was, like, oh, this is great. You know, I got free lunch. I just saved, like, $20, you know, boom, boom, boom. And then also, like, I heard my sponsor's voice in my head saying, like, you know, that's not honest. And, uh, and you know, and then I knew, like, oh, and then, you know, if I don't tell him that it happened, then I know I'm hiding something. And I'm definitely a only sick with my secrets person. And so all this was going through my head. And then I, um, you know, then I, it kind of boiled down to, okay, now I'm going to say something like, no, I'm not going to do this, you know. And, um I know what this means is, like, first of all, it's going to be weird because these are, like, my friends and my colleagues, and they're going to be like, you know, who are you, man, to, like, act like so high and mighty that, you know, you're going to put your foot down and say this isn't okay or whatever, you know. So I was not looking forward to that, but, you know, I knew for me, for my abstinence, because I was taught, you know, that, that my abstinence was linked to honesty, you know, and that I had to do it for myself. And um, and then as I started to speak up and say it and everything, and, you know, it was difficult and nobody wanted to really hear about it or whatever, it then it started on me it was going to get worse because I realized, well, I'm putting my money in and my friend's going to put it on the expense account and take my money, you know? So, so then it was like, you know, I had like another opportunity to go, wait a minute, maybe I'll just go along with this, you know? But um, I didn't and uh, I felt bad, you know? I left there and I felt bad. I felt bad about having this interaction with these people I worked with and I felt bad about having to pay this money, which seemed like a lot of money at that time in my life, so I wasn't making a lot of money. And I felt bad about being in this program and stuff, you know. And I told my sponsor the story, and he said, you know, if your abstinence is only worth $20 to you, then fine. You know, you should have done it. But you know what? If your abstinence was worth more, then it was worth it. And I was like, it all of a sudden hit me. You know, like I got off real easy. I mean, I'd been absent like a year, you know. And another funny thing happened once. Something came up at work like that same company like a year later, and the guy that was at lunch with me, something came up about integrity. And out of the blue, he just said, like, you can always trust Anthony. He's, he's honest. Don't worry about it. 
And, you know, like it was just a good feeling, you know, and I knew that consciously or unconsciously it, it happened from that lunch we'd had together. So um, for me, honesty is something that, you know, I need to practice on a daily basis with people to the best of my ability because it often feels like honesty, like it causes pain in the short run. In the moment, it's difficult to tell someone the truth, but in the long run, it's the easy, softer way, you know, and to not be honest in the short run, it gets really painful in the long run because life gets so much more complicated and, and difficult and stressful. Um, I wanted to talk about uh, a couple of other ones really quickly. Um, I wanted to talk about humility. You know, that's step seven, and, and I've had a lot of humility come to me over the years in no way by a lot of painful processes of, of you know, suffering in abstinence and sobriety and having difficult times and losing jobs, having a lot of relationships not work out. Thanks. I'll wrap up in five minutes um, and all that stuff. And um, what I, you know, what really came to me is I, I read stuff 7 and 8, 12 and 12 quite a bit. And a lot of it's like, um, you know, geared towards alcoholics and it talks about how, and I'm just paraphrasing here, you know, hey, you got to get off your high horse and get down here on the ground with the rest of us and not think you're so high and mighty. But my experience, and it talks about this in, the, in that chapter too, but my experience of myself and much more of people in LA is, you know, I got to get up off the ground and be, be amongst people, you know, and not think I'm so low and horrible and not good enough to be around other people and not, not you know, equal to other people and all that stuff. Because my experience of humility is, is in practicing that principle in my affairs is being able to show up and just go, you know, um, I'm not better than or worse than anybody. You know, I have a place here just like everybody else. And I need to speak up and I need to be myself and I need to act myself and at all times and know that, that that's acceptable to me and it's acceptable to my higher power. And if that's the only people that's acceptable, it's okay. But, you know, it's also turned out to be more than acceptable to a lot of people. So that's been really a, a powerful experience for me working towards um, humility. And there's a line in that step seven that says, um, we see all around us pain and suffer trans pain and suffering transformed through humility into priceless assets. And I meditate on that sentence sometimes because I meditate on the pain and suffering that I've had, which, you know, in the bigger picture in life has not been that big a deal, but I have experienced pain and suffering for myself. And I've experienced this transformation through humility into a long list of priceless assets. And, you know, a dozen years plus of abstaining from compulsive overeating and not having to have that obsessive thinking about food in my head not to mention the weight it's the obsessive thinking about food and myself that is weighs more than all the weight in the world to me i've been free of that and that's been a priceless gift and um i went through a lot of romantic relationships that didn't work out um over my time in the last 12 years and you know i i um when they would end i would turn on myself and feel like i'm not good enough there's something wrong with me why can't i make this work out Sometimes they would end, a, you know, a six-month relationship, and then I'd be obsessed with it on a regular basis for three years, you know. <laughs> and um, and so I uh, I finally hit a bottom on that, working a program around it, writing seven steps and ten steps around it. And you know, what happened for me is that hokey old thing that people say, like, hey, you have to love yourself and you know have a relationship with yourself and be okay alone. You know, that happened for me. That totally happened for me. And um, I got to that place, you know, and I, I'm still at that place, although I'm getting married in a couple of months, um, which is great, you know. I'm in a great relationship. Thanks. Um, 
she she deserves the applause more than I do. But um, <laughs> but um, but we have a great relationship. We're both really excited about it, and um, it's just it's just a real excitement and joy for me. And, and what I realized when I was doing that meditation is that you know it's a it's a priceless asset that came from you know my pain and suffering, and the humility is, is working the steps in between it. And um, you know, so many different things happened for me. I, I, I recognize that when I looked at all of these um, principles, you know, I asked myself, you know, what's the opposite of each one? And, you know, the answer that came up for me was the opposite of each of these 12 principles is self-centeredness, you know, and, and it's self-centered fear. It says in the program, you know, self-centered fear is, is the driver of all our problems in one way or another. And... Um, if I could say the opposite of honesty, you know, if I'm, not, if I'm dishonest, it's some self-centered fear that's driving me to be dishonest. Like, I, you've got to think something better about me, or I've got to get something I think I deserve I got coming to me, or I can't lose something I think is mine and I shouldn't be losing. So that's when my dishonesty would step in, you know. And that's self-centered fear because if I have faith in God, you know, I'm going to be okay. I don't have to worry about things being taken from me. And um, it's the same for all these other ones, whether it's... Um, Courage or integrity or willingness, the opposite for me is self-centeredness. If I'm, not, if I'm so obsessed with self and so fearful and unconnected to a higher power, then I can't practice these principles. So I don't practice them perfectly. Nobody does, you know, of course. But, um, but my experience of focusing on them um, on a regular basis, even if I just do a three-minute meditation in the morning about humility or about willingness or about courage or about faith, which is a practice I do pretty often, I find it, it has some impact on my day on a daily basis. The abstinence is pretty easy. The job is really good. The relationship is great. You know, I, I experience a lot of gratitude and a lot of fun and all the other stuff. And the you know, there's sadness and stuff like that too. But um, I uh, I'm just really grateful for this program, these 12 steps, and for OA and this fellowship. I love this fellowship. People have been so kind and loving to me in my in my time here, and people have reached out to me and helped me so much in, in OA. It's just been tremendous. So thanks for letting me share. Thank you very much, Anthony. Our next speaker is Patricia L. from Piedmont. Hi, I'm Pat. I'm a compulsive reader, and I'm very nervous. I don't know. I signed up to be a timer, and I get back this email that tells me I'm going to be speaking. And I called my sponsor, and I said, what am I supposed to do? And she said, you're supposed to speak. So here I am. Uh, I'm going to qualify, and I'm going to pass around some pictures. I think I'll, I'll pick the stairs rather than this. <laughs> I have a bunch of notes here. I hope I, I don't have to look at them very much. First, I'll qualify and say that um, I was born a compulsive overeater, and um, I'm, the, I'm the one in the middle, the fat one. <laughs> um, and my very first word was cookie, and I have not stopped talking about food since then. And I still talk about food a lot, but I talk about it. I don't shove it in my mouth at inappropriate times anymore. I came into program seven and a half years ago, and since the day I came in, I have not binged at night, and I have not opened up a jar of peanut butter and eaten it to the bottom with a spoon. And those were my two big behaviors that 
got me into a lot of trouble. Um, I was never huge. I never got really fat. I had this incredible high metabolism. And when you see my pictures, you'll see most of them are pretty thin. I'm, I'm pretty thin. The one that's going around separately shows me at my bottom. It's the picture that made me know I had to do something. And, um, and having that metabolism, I think, was more of a curse than a blessing. You know, at the time, it, it didn't feel that way because I could eat. I still eat more than my six-foot-one husband and maintain my weight. But, uh, my, but at that time, I could eat more than three six-foot-one guys and uh, maintain my weight. And it was, it was a curse because I didn't know what was going on inside of me. Um, it, it didn't connect that why I was eating was not because I was hungry, but because I was spiritually hungry. And uh, food was, was the comfort in my home. I, um, I'm an only child. Uh, my parents, uh, I was very, very close to my mom. I had a really ter terrible relationship with my father. My father had been a prisoner of war in World War II in a German prison camp. He went in at six foot one and 200 pounds, and he came out at six foot one and 113 pounds. As a result, um, for all the time I knew him, he was an alcoholic and a drug addict. He went to a doctor every day and got his shot of morphine, and I could never connect with him, except when we went out to eat. We'd go out to dinners. And all of a sudden, my father was my friend. He loved me. He talked to me. He paid attention to me. The rest of the time, I might as well have been a, a speck of dust on the window ledge. So I always associated food with, with happiness, with closeness. I, I, there wasn't a lot of touching in my family. But when you're passing around the food, your hands touch, and you have that connection. And so that, that had stayed with me. And... and I also became a control freak because I wanted to control people to love me. And um, that included controlling where we ate. Not so much with my family, but when I went to college, I'd get a whole group of people together, and I wouldn't ask anybody anything. I would tell them where we were going. I, I would always make the decisions, and, um, and I don't know why I got away with it. I mean, I wouldn't have been my friend if I, if I was picking, but I, but I, I was my friend. <laughs> except I was my enemy at the same time. Um, and um, it was in my late 30s when perimenopause kicked in that I started gaining weight, and I became very, very unhappy. I went traveling, and I went with friends who were normal sizes, and we were in Europe, and they could buy clothes, and I refused to buy clothes, and instead I was just totally depressed. And I came back, and it was just before my 40th birthday, and I didn't want to be 40 and fat. And so I went into Weight Watchers. I lost every single week. It didn't take much for me to lose. I just kept losing by following the food plan. And in three and a half months, I was down to goal weight. I, I had lost 37 pounds. And I'm 5'7". Right now, I'm 5'7 and 3 quarters. And I, uh, I'll tell you about that later because I used to be 5'7". And <laughs> just a mere year and a half ago. And um, I weigh, um, I, I forgot where I was going with that. Well, couldn't have been too important if I forgot. Anyway, um, 
I lost the weight, and of course, little by little, it came back. Um, and when I hit 50, I was close to my top weight, and I was miserable. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I was nasty to people. My mom was very sick. She was, at the time, I didn't realize it, but she was on her deathbed. And I was, I was a dutiful daughter, but I could have been a lot warmer and more understanding and caring. And at some point, something clicked. And I knew I had to do something, but I was too busy caretaking my mom. And my mom died, and six weeks later, I remembered reading something years earlier in Dear Abby about OA. I knew nothing about 12-step programs. I knew nothing. I walked in. Well, actually, I made a phone call, found where a meeting was, went there. There was no meeting. Made another phone call. The person started yelling at me, saying, I told them to take me off the list. Why are you calling me? And, oh. And then the third time I tried, I found a meeting, and I've been coming back ever since. Tying this into the, to, to the uh, concepts and, and practicing these principles in all our affairs, for seven and a half years, I have never gone a week without a meeting. For seven and a half years, for the most part, I've gone to three or four meetings a week. For seven and a half years, I've persevered. I initially lost about 30 pounds. And I went through some physical stuff, and I gained back about 10. I'm maintaining about a 20-pound weight loss. But today, I probably weigh at least 250 pounds rather than – I'm about 162 now. Um, I'm sure I'd weigh at least 250 if I were not in this program. But it would not only be 250 pounds here, there would be 500 pounds of fat in my head because I think fat. And I still think that, and I get through that by persevering, by working this program, by talking to my sponsor, by talking to my food sponsor, by being honest and turning over my food. I practice these principles in all my affairs as best I can, which is certainly not perfectly. Uh, anyway, what happened, I'll, I'll go quickly. My mom died. I joined the program. I got abstinent immediately. Um, I got a sponsor the first, at the first night that I was in program. Someone came up to me afterwards and said, I'll be your sponsor, and I said, great. And I did everything she told me to do for about six months. She lost her abstinence, disappeared, and it took me a little bit of time to find another sponsor. I've been with her ever since. She is my guiding light. She is not my higher power, but boy, if I have questions. If she doesn't have the answer, her sponsor will have it. If her sponsor doesn't have it, her sponsor's sponsor will have it, and it will trickle back down to me. I do what they tell me to do. Not quickly. She might tell me to work on my fourth step, and it might take me two years to finish it. I'll finish it eventually. I'll do it at my pace. She knows not to push. If she pushed me, I'll be out the door. And it gets done. It absolutely gets done. Um, while I was learning the program, I heard the promises, and of course, what I heard is that you join this program, everything's going to be fine. Your life is going to be like a fairy tale. It's going to be wonderful. You'll, you'll never have financial worries. That doesn't, I took it to mean you're going to win the lottery. Somebody is going to come in and give you all this food, and you're never going to gain an extra pound, and, and life's going to be wonderful. Well, um, didn't turn out that way. I, while I was hoping for that to happen, life happened. And I've had a, a bunch of setbacks in my life in this program. 
I will turn to my notes here. Um, I've had a bunch of surgeries. I had a foot surgery. I um, had a thyroid problem. And I actually thought about not having the surgery because my vanity made me think, oh, my God, I'm going to have a scar in my neck. And I was thinking, well, you know, it'll probably go away. But it kept getting bigger and bigger, and so I, I had it out, and it was benign, thank God. Um, a year and a half ago, I had a hip replacement. Um, I'm an avid skier. or I haven't been for two years, but I had been an avid skier. I kept falling on the same hip, and I think that did me in, because the other hip is fine. And um, when I had the replacement, um, there were all kinds of things that went wrong. And practicing these principles, I didn't blame the doctor. These things happen. They're blaming the doctor, blaming the doctor's office would do me no good. I just moved on with it. And um, this, among the things that happened were that the, um, I did not donate enough blood for myself because I was anemic and I didn't go in early enough. And so instead of three to five days in the hospital, I was in the hospital for two weeks. And then I, I came home, and I was home for a few weeks. And then I had a pulmonary embolism, and I almost died. And I called the doctor's office, and they put me on hold, and then the secretary said, he'll call you back later. This was 9 in the morning. He called my house at 4.30 in the afternoon. Meantime, I was already in the hospital. My internist took care of me and made sure I, I was taken care of. And I did not die. But all through that, I learned how to pray. I didn't have a higher power before I came here. And my, my biggest change in relationships has been I found a higher power and I've learned to love and trust that that being, whoever it may be. I'm still not sure who it is, but it, it's somebody who takes care of me every day of my life. And I got to the, the embolism and that whole time in the hospital, and this you, you'll all appreciate, I got there at 10 in the morning. They didn't provide me with any food and I kept asking them. At 10 at night, they brought me a stale peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And that was my meal for the day. And, you know, I, I could be dying. My mother said this was true when I was a little kid. It didn't matter how sick I was. I wanted to eat. I had to have my food no matter what. And I guess, you know, I still have to have my food. But this, this was normal. I mean, I needed to have food because it was the right time of day. Um, I learned to... Um, while I was in the hospital, I learned to stand up for myself. They, the staff made a lot of mistakes, and they, um, especially when I went back, and they, they put me in the renal ward when I had a hip replacement. Um, and uh, they kept trying to get me to, well, you can sit on the toilet. No, I can't sit on the toilet. I need a special thing. And I stood up for myself, and I refused to do these things that these authority figures were telling me to do. And that's... that's um, Nothing I would have done before. I would have always believed the doctor, believed the nurse, believed the, the um, technician who came in. But instead, I knew I knew what my doctor had told me. I, I read enough, and I knew I had to do that. Um, through all of this time, I had the world's worst boss. I've been praying for him for several years. I kept praying that his life would get better. And you know what? They took him out of my department, and I have the world's best boss now. 
for the first time in my life, I have a boss who comes up to me and says, without any prompting, I'm so glad you're doing your job because I know I don't have to worry about it getting done. You do it right. I'm looking around to see who he's talking to because it couldn't possibly be me. The other guy just berated everyone on the staff. And, um, but praying for him, he seems happier now. He's in a job that suits him better. And I'm happier, and I think everybody around me is happier. Um, I've always been a control freak. I always wanted to play God. And I had something recently happen, and if you look at the pictures, you'll see pictures of my dogs. And um, the black dog, Calvin, has cancer. And he's my baby. He's, He's 11 years old. He is the sweetest being I have ever known. He, he just has been with me through all these hard times. He walked the picket line when my when I was on uh, strike, and he also <laughs> I didn't know what he was like at the time. But he he didn't like wheels, and he lunged at a, a man in a wheelchair. But through all this, I loved him. It was very easy for me to love him because he gave me unconditional love, and I've learned a lot from him. And. Um, when I found out he had cancer and we had the lump removed, the doctor said he thought he got it all. When I took him back for his bandage change, I was told they didn't. And for the first time in my life, after seven and a half years of program, I'm in my car saying, okay, I get this turning it over business. I finally know what that means. I am turning this over to you, God, because I don't know what to do. I, the options were all bad. I mean radiation, amputation, uh, euthanasia, none of those sounded good to me. And I turned it over, and all of a sudden, I felt physical relief. I mean, I I couldn't believe that I felt physical relief, but I did. And I really appreciated that whole concept of turning it over. And, um, and And I really know that I'm not God. If it were up to me, I'd have him become a puppy again. I'd let him stay stay healthy for the rest of his days. I don't know how much longer I have him, but I love him every day. I appreciate him every day. And I am very blessed to have a husband who feels the same way I do. I spent, this will probably be my last point, but I spent years um, going through relationships and um, trying to manipulate people. Relationships with the capital R, meaning the person you sleep with, as I just heard in the relationship workshop. And my um, my husband was somebody that I wasn't interested in, but he followed me around like a lost puppy dog. And um, he we formed a band, and he bought me a set of drums, and he just he just wanted to be close to me, and I kept him at a distance. And then we started dating, and I still kept him at a distance for 10 years. And I know my higher power was taking care of me because this is the best man in the world for me. And he stuck with me through the worst of my compulsive overeating, and now I can look at him and say, you're right. Those words never came out of my mouth before. I can say, I'm sorry, I won't do that again, and maybe I will do it again, but I'll sure try not to. And... um, I can just, I love him so much, and I I can pick up my cell phone and call him and say, I love you. Now, it's not all rosy because 
every once in a while he'll do something that just pisses me off. Who, who doesn't? And, you know, I'm an addict. What do I think? Okay. Where's that lawyer's number? I'm getting a divorce. I mean, he can leave the lid off of the jar of, of pickles and put it on the counter. And my first recourse is, I'm getting a divorce. Because I don't know how to do relationships. And then I remember to turn it over. I pray a lot. I, I, and I say those things um, that I don't believe sometimes. And then I find out they're true. They're really true. I've, I've lived in the bondage of self for many, many years. And um, I'm slowly finding my way out of that deep hole. And I'd like to read from how it works in the, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Selfishness, self-centeredness, that, we think, is the root of our troubles, driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity. We step on the toes of our fellows, and they retaliate. Sometimes they hurt us, seemingly without provocation, but we invariably find that at some time in the past, we have made decisions based on the self, um, which later placed us in a position to be hurt. Boy, I sure did that. So our troubles, we think, are basically of our own making. They arise out of ourselves, and the alcoholic is an extreme example of self-will run riot, though he usually doesn't think so. God was I in self-delusion. About everything, the alcoholics must be rid of this selfishness. We must or it kills us. God makes that possible. And I am trying my best every day of my life to be free of that self-will to care about others. And if I learn it from my dog, that's a good way of learning it. I just saw the stop sign, so I'll do that. Thank you. Thank you, Patricia. Our last speaker is the amazing Mitch. honest with you, I'm also a recovering attention getter. <laughs> I just could not let Anthony get the whole show in the first part. Uh, it's tough being the third one, you know, because <laughs> everybody was great and I really liked what they had to say and now I'm like, I have to be better. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's my own ego in my head. And See my card? It's got a little fish on it. It's my birthmark. It's also, it's, it's also a Brussels sprout. It looks like a fish. So. You know, I knew I had to read this, this book before I spoke because um, when my girlfriend asked me what the topic was, she says, oh, you got an easy topic. You can just read the 12 by 12. Just read the 12 steps. And I went, okay. I, I, I've read it before, you know. But I didn't read it right then. So then I get this email that tells me what I can and cannot do here. And then it also says, it also says, read page 105 of the 12 by 12 of OA. So I got it twice, you know, I figured maybe it's a sign, you know, I should read this, you know. So I did. I ended up reading it. It's on, it actually starts on 103 and goes through uh, 106, and it's a 12 step. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but uh, I'm going to read some of it. What are some of the principles inherent in each step that we are encouraged to practice in all our affairs? In step one, 
we learn the principle of honesty as we admit our personal powerlessness over food and the fact that without help, we could not successfully manage our own lives. And that was true for me. Um, I was definitely powerless over food, even though I, at, the, at the time I didn't know it. Um, I thought I was handling it just fine, thanks. You know, and um, but it was killing me in a, in a lot of ways, and I won't get into all the details because I could take up the whole 20 minutes doing that. But it was killing me in a lot of ways, and um, the doctors didn't know what the hell to do. They just kept giving me pills. And um, before coming here, I started working with somebody, and and things started changing in my life. And one of the things that happened was that when I stopped eating compulsively, I was like a, a junkie. You know, I was physically going through withdrawals, and I didn't know what was going on, and I'd be curled up on the floor, you know, and um, this professional I was working with said, you, you need to go to OA. So I ended up coming here for myself. I had been coming to meetings, but I started coming for me, and my life started to change, you know, and um, that's my truth, and that's what happened for me. It says in the second... In the second step, we learn hope as we came to believe that the power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. This hope will now need, we ne this hope will now need to underline all our actions. You know, um, I, you know, the, the thing, the thing about it was that, you know, I mean, in a lot of ways I knew I was insane, you know. And I, and I knew that I needed to be restored to sanity. You know, that was kind of an easy one for me. And um, so the second step did kind of give me that. You know, when I was, once I got abstinent, I was on a, I had, I had had a spiritual practice before coming here. But I was always, I always felt like something wasn't right. Like, I would be in these spiritual groups, and um, and I always felt like you know people were doing better than me. They were you know they were able to meditate longer and better, and they they saw these things that I was wanting to see, and uh, they had experiences that I wanted to have, and and I was still full of anger and bitterness and jealousy, and and even though I believed in God, that and I had seen changes in my life. There was just something lacking. And what it was was that the food was in the way of my spiritual connection to God. And once I was able to, to, to get abstinent, my spiritual program just took off like a rocket. And um, and then when that happened, of course, this third principle of faith became even stronger because then I started seeing that this could work for me, that this program of Overeater Anonymous could work for me, and that God could restore me to sanity, and that um, in areas I felt totally hopeless over. Um, it says uh, in, the, in, in step four and five, we learn courage and uh, integrity as we face the truth about our defects of character. Applying these principles to all our affairs means that 
we are no longer ruled by fear. So it, it doesn't say that we're, we lack fear. It just says that we're no longer ruled by it. So, because um, I still get afraid, you know. But I don't let it stand in my way of, of going ahead and, of, you know, doing the things that I that my head wants to tell me to be afraid of. So, uh, and I think that's where the courage and um, integrity come in. Um, also, with integrity, I think it, I'm going to add it to the um, shortcomings, the character defects, and, and applying it to six and seven. You know, I mean. I do uh, I do the steps in a, in a certain way and that incorporates I do a ten step in a certain way that incorporates all the steps and it's it's very uh, searching and thorough on a daily basis or even every other basis and um, I look at uh, I look at all these fears and all this stuff that goes on in my life and I write them out on on a, as a letter to God. And then I read them to my sponsor, and um, and then that allows me to, to free me up to to not be afraid of them as much, and then I can come and share them with other people and share them at the group level and and um, and get some relief from them and not have to be stuck in them and caught in them. And um, so it says here in step six that we have a willingness and. Um, I definitely have a willingness because I don't longer I no longer want to be in pain. I no longer want to be mentally tormented by my thoughts and my actions and my character defects. So that's given me the, the willingness to uh, to let go and to uh, go back to the first step in a lot of character defects and realize that I'm powerless over them, and then go to step two and realize that there is a power greater than me that can restore me to sanity around my character defect and then to step three and then four and, and I would look at four with that kind of situation as being able to come to a meeting and share with it because I just wrote about it in step ten so that would be four and five or to share it with another human being if not at a group level um, seven it talks about humility and um One of the things that one of the things that I work on on a daily basis is in, in this area of humility is to to be a non-judgmental person. Um, I judged me harshly, and I judge I judge others, and still do harshly. So, one of the things that I've done with this is that I believe that when I was born that I was born a non-judgmental person. That I was born with contentment and with uh, this, John, this ego, no ego, no con with full of contentment and, and no judgment. And I just sort of trusted everything. And of course, my life experience told me that I couldn't trust and without being able to trust, I had to judge. And um, so... I take it back to the steps and I realize that I'm powerless over my judgmentalness and uh, if that's even a word. And um, and I take it back to that second step too because 
if God created me a non-judgmental person, then God can restore me to that being again. I believe that. And that's my strive. That's my goal. May I get there in this lifetime? I don't know. But I, I, I'm willing, I, ha- I have the desire to be there. Because judgment causes me a great deal of pain. Not only judging myself, but judging others causes me a great deal of pain. So um, that's my goal with the seventh step. And I know I can't do it on my own. That only a power greater than me can restore me to sanity. So I set my sights on it, and when it comes up, I ask God to remove it. And I go back to six and seven with it. Oh, boy. So, just say, step eight. Um, it says the principle of self discipline and love for others in all our actions. You know, uh, I made a fatal mistake one time telling my sponsor that I wanted to talk to people in a loving manner because when I came into this program, I I came in here feeling like I was carrying a, a, a sawed-off shotgun pointed at my head. And, uh, and any minute now, it's going to pull that, pull that trigger, those double-barrel trigger, and blow my brains out. And um, I remember one time being in a meeting and I uh, this guy was talking and I just wanted to kill him. <laughs> and uh, this friend of mine pointed out that that was recovery for me. <laughs> and I didn't know what he was talking about. You know, what do you mean? That's like, that's, like, that's like the most insane thing I heard in the meetings, you know, that I have some recovery because I want to kill somebody. And he said, well, for somebody like you going from suicide to homicide, that's recovery. <laughs> so he had me, okay, so I'm like, you know, Walking around at the end of the meeting going, I want to kill that guy. I got some recovery, you know. <laughs> some people would just like, you know, give me a hug, pat me on the back, tell me to keep coming back. You know, some people just kind of walked around me and went out the door, you know. So, you know. <laughs> you know. But, uh, you know, uh, that's like kind of like what my recovery has been like. And then. I got to a place where I had this shotgun at my side all the time, and I would be ready to just blast you with it if you happened to say the wrong thing to me. You know, like, you know, like, uh, you, you know, you tell me you like the way I'm combing my hair now. You know, what do you mean? You know, because <laughs> I thought you were insulting me. You know, I didn't know you were like telling, giving me a compliment. You know, so I had to say, I had to like go to my sponsor. I'm like, I want to talk to people in a loving manner. You know, so. So he would always remind, you know, so in these 10 steps, you know, I'm writing about how I blasted this person and blasted this person, you know. And he would tell me to go back and make amends to him, you know, and I didn't want to do that, you know. So, of course, you know, after a while, you know, and, and, and he would say, remember, you, you told me you wanted to talk to these people in a loving way. So go back to him and talk to him in a loving way. And I'm, okay. You know. So, and of course... <laughs> I didn't want to keep going back to these people, you know, because, um, you know, I wanted to blast them. So um, I started practicing more of being in a, in, to, to speak to people in a more loving way. And just recently I, I noticed that I, I didn't have the shotgun with me as much. So it's like somewhere along the lines in the three and a half years, that, and I'm the baby up here on the panel, 
um, I set that shotgun down and I don't know where, and that's a good thing. <laughs> so, uh, step eight. Maybe it's nine. I don't know. Um, um, I did talk about nine, so I'll move on to ten. ten. It says in step ten, we discover the values of perseverance and working the 12 steps. You know, and that's the way I do these 10 steps, it takes perseverance. But because it's, you know, it's, 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 it's like, because it's still like, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to. But I don't want to die anymore either. You know, I just don't want to die anymore. So I do the 10 steps. Like I said earlier, I write them as a letter to God and then I read them to my sponsor and Thank, thank you. I'm sorry. Thank you. And I will um, hopefully be done before my five minutes are up. Um, step 11 is spiritual awareness. Now, see, now that's something I can talk for, next, for at least five minutes, but I won't. Uh, <laughs> because, you know, I meditate and I pray. And, it's, and at times it's difficult for me to talk about this in meetings because I don't hear it talked a lot about meetings at meetings. And when I do talk about it, I get a lot of this. Or I get somebody that, you know, crosstalks my share, even though there's no crosstalk, you know. Or at least it seems like crosstalk to me, you know. Because, you know, I get up I get up an hour early every morning before I go to work. i got to be at work at 6.30 and I'm up at 4.30 so that I can shower and get back, to, get back on top of my bed and meditate for anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour. And the longer I meditate, the better. And on the weekends, I try to get in two, two hours of meditation and prayer meditation in the mornings. And I haven't quite got to where I can do it at night, but there, are, there have been times when I've been able to meditate at night. And I really like it because my spiritual program for me is very important to me. And it's very, it's very important to me. And it's a very sensitive thing for me, too. Um, so, because I want to be, I want to be, connected to God always I want to be able to look out here instead of judging you like I talked about earlier I want to see God because that's who I, that's who's actually looking at me right now and that's what I want to see and that's what I want to remember because we're all just manifestations of God in my program so that's very important to me so and service 12 the principle of service which underlines the OA 12, 12 step can now guide our actions both inside and outside the program. Now, one of the things that I'm doing up here today, and, I'm, and it's not, it's, I'm, I'm nervous, and I'm, I've been nervous through the whole thing, which is not usual for me when I speak. Usually after certain, I don't want to walk away with my brack without my uh, Brussels sprout. Uh, so, uh, I'm up here today and I'm sharing my experience, strength, and hope, hopefully, with you, and um, as a form of service. So how do I carry that outside? So I carry that outside by my job. I mean, my job is not in the uh, field of uh, helping people, even though I thought that's where I should go. To go, you know, to be a social worker or something like that. Um, it's not in that field. But I do work in an office where I do things for people. 
And I thank you. And I um, so I look at that as a form of service. And I get up in the morning to go do some service, and I go to my job and I do service. Sometimes my job has a lot of downtime, and my services I get to make phone calls, and I get to do some work, and I write ten steps, and I'll call my sponsor and talk to him about my ten steps. But um, you know, but when I do work, it's a form of service because I am actually I work in finance, so I help people get money. <laughs> And a lot of those people are real happy that I get their money. So, uh, you know, and, and, and that's how I carry that part of this program. But I do. I mean, I I try to be a walking, talking example of, of the 12 steps. And um, and I believe I do that to the best of my ability. And I, and I, and I do that a lot better than I used to. If I look at where I came from and where I'm at today, you know, I'm a spiritual giant. You know, if I listen to my head then I'm just a piece of turd. So I have to look at where I came from. And I thank you, and I thank the committee for asking me to speak with you today. Thank you, Mitch. This meeting is now open for three-minute pitches. Please limit your share to three minutes and confine your share to your experience, strength, and hope on the topic discussed today. Also, all participants must sign the tape release form, and uh, please sign up before you pitch. This session ends at 5.15. Can we form a line over here for those that want to talk? All right, well, I'm Carrie, and I'm a compulsive overeater in recovery. Hi, Hi, you guys. Um, Thank you to the speakers. I appreciate your service. Um, I just just wanted to say that I, um, there's a a person program that I had to respect who has a license plate that says I OOA. And that's how I really feel about this program. I just I wanted to express how much I agree with that. Um, as far as in all my affairs, you know, the number one thing that I'm learning here is that I am a beloved child of God, and not because um, I get to be defiant or the center of the universe, but just because I am, just because I I'm here and I exist, and um, that's such a gift. You know, it takes a lot of pressure off of you when you no longer have to feel like you're either a piece of crap or you're like have to be better than everybody else. It's, it's about being right sized. And so that's kind of what I think that's the most important part of an all my affairs um, for me. I also wanted to check in that I've been through a lot in this program absolutely. And uh, I take that for granted. I think on a daily basis. So now's the time just to remind myself that, um, you know, I was in a really bad car accident about three years ago, and um, I was out of work for a year. And you know, I was abstinent because my sponsor was there for me every single day. You know, and she carried the message that my higher power wants me to stay abstinent. 
you know, the people that came to the hospital were my OA friends. And um, I owe, I just, I owe OA for that. So um, the other thing that I want to share real quick is that um, I really need to hear that I'm not a failure because I, I just ended a relationship and I'm pretty heartbroken about it. So the message I heard up here that um, that I'm still okay, it's just real crucial for me not to compulsively overeat of that today. And that's all that comes to mind right now. Thank you. Hi, my name is Molly. I'm a compulsive overeater. And thank you very much um, for your shares. Um, I think for me, I've always really liked the 12-step, but I haven't really understood it. Um, I mean, I've understood it in different ways at different times of my program. And uh, and the first line of the 12-step and the 12 and 12 says, the joy of living is the theme of these steps. And I never really heard that the first time. I really thought, you know, keeping me abstinent is the theme of these steps or, you know, being um, working the steps, then I'll be able to, to have a, somewhat of a life and work. That's the theme of the steps. But I didn't notice for a long, long time that it says the joy of living. Because I never found life very joyous in my past before I came to OA. And I don't ever think that I really believe that life could be joyous. It just seemed like life was was just painful and you just got through it. and and my whole conversation was just about that. I mean, even for a long time in the program, you know, it was, well, I'm abstinent today, you know, by the grace of God, you know, just kind of a, you know, it's, it's sort of the language that I use, but I use a much different language today, you know. It's, and what I've realized is that through the 12 steps, I actually have built the capacity to hold joy. And we don't talk a lot about that. We don't talk a lot about when we come in here, we're in a lot of pain, and we don't have much room for joy. And we don't even know how to hold joy if we even experience it. Like, I could never really hold joy. And I have to say that um, I've done a couple inventories, and I started working with a new sponsor two years ago. And I had done enough work in the program where... I really needed to start fully living, and I had no idea what that meant. And I worked with her, and I did an inventory. And, you know, we've been working for the past two years on what it means to be fully living and to live in joy and to show up and say positively, you know, I can, you know, if I if I do what I do today, then I'll be abstinent in the future. And that I don't have to turn to food, and I don't want to turn to food, and it's not my food anymore anyway. And... I think one of the things that my sponsor really helped me to see is that we can really live beyond our wildest dreams. And it's not my life anymore, it's God's life. And that helps me out a lot, just to say to myself, you know what, it's not my life, it's God's life. And I can allow good things in. I think for me it's allowing the good things in that are really harder than just getting over the painful parts, even though I did that in my early recovery and that was hard too. But, um, so anyway, um, I started working with this woman because I wanted to start dating, and I couldn't date, and then I learned how to date, and I became a dater, and uh, that was all very interesting, and I couldn't have done it without the people in these rooms, and then this spring, I realized I was done with dating, whatever dating was, and... (laughs) 
and I was really ready to be in a relationship. And then, sure enough, about a month later, um, I went out with somebody, and now we're in a relationship. And it's it's a really good thing. But I couldn't have done it one day sooner. You know, I couldn't I couldn't have allowed anything in like that unless I had done these inventories and done the step work. But then, what's great is that once you do the step work, you're free, and you really are free. You know, and you don't have to worry that it's going to be taken from you. As long as you keep doing what you do today, it'll stay with you. So anyway, that's all I have to say. But it's been a it's been a great thing. So thanks. Anyone else want to pitch? You might have to listen to me. <laughs> I'm Jan, compulsive overeater. And I just wanted to uh, say how much I am impressed by this program and all of the principles and how they fit together with the steps and that we end up with such marvelous speakers as the ones we've had today. And um, everyone out here is so great about uh, being here for our support. So thank you very much. And I want to thank our timer. I didn't have to worry about that today. Now it's time to close this meeting. Let's um, thank our speakers again. And please stand where you are, and after a moment of silence, join me in Roseanne's promise.